Welcome to another episode of Single Payer Radio. We broadcast our program from the Habern Building here in downtown Louisville. The show is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare, and we're an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. And let me see. We advocate for a national, publicly funded, nonprofit single payer system. Everybody in, nobody out. Mike and Gene are going to review some of the facets of our health care system to justify why we advocate for a one payer system. The views and opinions expressed on our show are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley. I'm a volunteer with the group, as we all are. And let you know that coming up, this uh, radio station, WFMP 1065, is going to be six years on the air. There were about five years that went into the preparation of getting to the uh, on-air point. And we are going to have our um, celebration of that sixth birthday celebration on Saturday, April the 8th, 6.30 to 8.30 at the Core Gallery, K-O-R-E Gallery, 942 East Kentucky Street. Uh, we'll have food, drink, music, fun, and surprises, according to the organizing committee. We'll also have remarks by uh, newly elected state senator Cassie Armstrong. March 27th through the April the 9th will be our pledge drive week. You can visit forwardradio.org for the link to our pledge drive portal where you can pick up some great thank you uh, gifts with your donations. Uh, let me see. We want to remind listeners new to the show that single-payer radio can be heard on WFMP 106.5 on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick up our radio signal, you can live stream us at forwardradio.org. For new listeners, let you know that WFMP Forward Radio is an all-volunteer station. We rely on the community for your ideas and our funding. Kentuckians for Single Payer Radio is a partner with Forward Radio. We'll be uh, renewing our partner uh, agreement and our contribution to the station. Without further ado, Drs. Mike Flynn and Gene Shively. Mike. Yeah, this is uh, Michael Flynn, a retired surgical oncologist uh, from the University of Louisville Surgery Department. And let me begin with the usual disclaimer that any comments I make uh, represent my personal views and do not represent the views of the University of Louisville or the Surgery Department. This is uh, Dr. Eugene Shively. I'm a retired rural surgeon from Camelsville, Kentucky. The views that I express do not represent the radio station or the University of Louisville or Taylor Regional Hospital. 
Well, our program topic today is is going to be part two. Uh, uh, last program we did on the U.S. health industry focused on extracting profit from every healthcare activity, as opposed to a healthcare system which exists in most of the rest of the first world, which is focused on providing healthcare for their citizens. So I'm going to begin uh, just to go over some of the aspects of the insane complexity of, of U.S. health care to basically finish off our discussion from last week. And then Gene is going to start um, uh, on a newer tack and talk, talk about some of the consolidation that's going on in health care, uh, again, driven by profit uh, seeking activities involving just about every every healthcare activity. All right, so let's just go down the list of, of some of this insane complexity. And before I do that, um, we have had a, uh, a Canadian surgeon, a fellow named Ted Young from Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, and during one of his programs, I, we asked him about how, how does... How does he deal with the billing issues in the Canadian system? And basically he said it was it's very simple. They send a bill to the provincial government, and two or three weeks, four weeks later, they get a check. Um, uh, the provincial government gets resources from the central government, and our system, uh, which I'm going to discuss in just a moment— we're dealing with the issue of over a thousand for-profit health insurance companies, um, each with somewhere between 15 to 30 plans, varying from very, very good coverage to almost no coverage. So, number one, let's talk about pre-authorization, deductibles, co-pays, co-insurance, and surprise billing. So, pre-authorization means that uh, you need to get permission from uh, whatever insurance company is, whatever plan they have for blood tests, imaging, surgery, medications, on and on and on, hospitalizations. Deductibles. This is the amount you pay before the insurance pays. And again, this depends upon the plan. So if you have a $2,000 deductible, you pay $2,000 out of pocket, and then the insurance starts to pay. Then there's co-pays. Uh, these are flat fees for certain visits. And again, this depends upon the plan. Uh, you might have a plan that has a $30 copay for a primary care physician, $50 copay for a specialist, and $150 pay for an emergency room, and, and there are ranges all over the place. Again, just another example of the insane complexity of health care uh, in this country. Coinsurance. <laughs> this is the percentage of the bill after you meet the deductible. So if you have a copay of $2,000 and then you have a plan that is a 20%, 80% plan, you pay 20% and the plan pays 80%. You could have a 30% and a 70% plan. And again, this is the 15 to 30 different plans that the insurance companies uh, 
offer, uh, depending upon how much <clears throat> you can afford or how much you're willing to pay for health care coverage. Uh, surprise billing. Uh, this this is a situation where uh, an individual receives care um, from an out-of-network provider, which is it could be either unknowing or unavoidable. For example, if you go to an emergency room after you've fallen and and injured your wrist, uh, <clears throat> they take an X-ray of your wrist. The radiologist is out of network. Uh, you see the emergency room, you pay your $150 emergency room fee, but since the radiologist out of network, <laughs> you get another bill from the radiologist. And this is billed for the service that's not covered because that person, the radiologist, is out of network. I want to talk just a little bit about networks, which are another example of uh, the insane complexity of, of health care in this country, and I'm going to uh, pass this over to Gene. So the insurance companies um, have networks to, quote, control and predict costs, which actually means to increase profits. They have a list of uh, physicians, other providers, uh, hospitals that they contract with, to provide medical care. Includes laboratories, uh, surgery centers. <laughs> and now you, you can have an EPO network, which is an exclusive provider organization. And these medical services are covered only if you use the providers in the network. Then there's the HMO, the Health Maintenance Organization. And this limits coverage to the provider in the network with the HMO. <clears throat> and as you can see, there's a pattern here. They all focus on uh, limiting access to care depending upon what arrangements the, the health insurance company has made with either a hospital or physician group or a pharmacy or, or whatever. The PPO <laughs> is a preferred provider organization. Now, the insurance you have to pay less as a, as a copay if you use a provider in the plan. You have to pay more if you use a provider outside the network. And then lastly, we have the point of service. And basically, <laughs> it's, it's a, and you can see there's a pattern here. And all of these things, you pay less if you use... Uh, the network providers, uh, you need a referral to see a specialist. Almost finished here. Then there are health care um, network categories. There's bronze, silver, gold, and platinum, which means you have better health care at a higher cost with a platinum or gold plan, at lower cost with more copay and more deductibles, in a a um, a silver or blonde a blonde bronze uh, plan, and lastly is the issue of healthcare portability. Uh, most of the sponsored plans impede portability in healthcare. All right, Gene, I've got that rant out of my system. <clears throat> you want to tell us about the consolidation that's been going on in healthcare, and and how that. Uh, also increases the complexity of 
of, of, of how people get, get some kind of health care coverage in this country. Well, I think I'm going to have to take some Finnegan for what you just told me was very <laughs> nauseating. And, and, and I've been practicing for over 40 years, and I still don't understand all that. Well, I don't either. I, that's why I wanted to talk about this, because it's, it's, and it's, it's, it's even worse. I simplified it. And uh, Go ahead. So you can understand uh, why there's so much bureaucracy in medicine. Yes. And you can also uh, understand uh, uh, why uh, you don't know what your, your bill is uh, because uh, you may not know what your deductible is and you may not know what your copay is. <coughs> and uh, it's become very, very complicated. Now, tell me again the difference between a deductible and a copay, and then tell me what uh, uh, point of, uh, of contact or service is. I, I get confused about well, that. Well, I, I, I can, the deductible is what you pay before the insurance pays. So if you, 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 you buy a plan— <clears throat> And uh, the, the example I used was you have a $2,000 deductible. Um, I was, before I retired, I was uh, on our plan, uh, the University of Louisville self-insured. <clears throat> our deductible for the family was less than $400. Um, I don't know if you remember, we had a... Uh, uh, a, a, a retired gynecologist on, uh, she did a couple of programs with us, and her husband is a, um, a, a dentist in a, in a, on a single practice, and his other, the employees in the practice all had health insurance through their, their significant others or through another resource. And so she went to the medical marketplace and if you remember, she she had a deductible of almost three thousand dollars for she her husband she and her husband, and 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 it, and then and then after that that she had these outrageous copays, so the deductible is is what you pay out of pocket before the insurance company pays a dime. So, the, the, if, for example, if I get sick. And I got a five thousand dollar deductible. Then I have to pay the first five thousand dollars out of my the pocket. The insurance company doesn't pay a dime. Yes. Now, after that. After that, then uh, you've got this coinsurance issue. Depending upon which plan you 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 accepted, the if you you have a very good plan, the insurance company will pay most or all of it. You can have a plan that allows you to pay 20% and the insurance company pays 80%. If you have a plan that has you paying, this is addition to the, the, your, your, your deductible, say 30% versus the, and the insurance company pays 70%, then the premium for that is, is, is going to be lower than the 80-20 the plan. And the co-pays are also part of the plan and depends on which plan you get. And then you have to pay a certain amount to see a primary care physician. You pay a certain amount to see a specialist. You pay a certain amount to do 
to to uh, uh, if you have to go to the emergency room, and in all there are all of these 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 little steps that uh, you know the basic foundation of this is the extraction of profit out of the healthcare system which doesn't go back into the healthcare system but it goes into as we talked about the last time it goes into the administrative costs and the profit of the for-profit insurance companies i'm still a little confused about what is the difference between copay and coinsurance well again i'm confused about it too but as well as i can understand it the copays are flat fees you pay for um, uh, an activity. You pay a flat. Let's say you. Ins- the the example I've got here is if you go see your primary care physician because you've got a fever, then you pay thirty dollar copay. You go in. When I go see the uh, the um, ophthalmologist when I after I had my cataracts done, I I, I pay a copay of of, of something like around that that neighborhood um the other example i had here is if you have a you had to go see a specialist then your copay might be fifty dollars if you go into the emergency room because you fell down and 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 sprained your wrist it could 150 again that that's the the whole point about this complexity is all of these things are different depending upon which plan you you negotiate with the insurance company. Um, when I was at the University of Louisville, it was it was it was a self-insured. So they put the details of the plan together. It was a, there was good health coverage. They hired an insurance company to manage it. They got paid a fee to manage it, but they didn't have any control over where the money went and how it was how it was organized. Now the coinsurance, <laughs> I know this is the coinsurance is the percentage of the bill that you pay after you've met your deductible. So you pay your two thousand dollar you 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 pay two thousand you pay out two thousand dollars before. The insurance company pays based on the plan example that I've got here. And then you've got the flat fees to go see the primary care physician or the specialist or the go you go to the emergency room because you fell down and sprained your wrist. And then again, depending upon the plan, there's this coinsurance, which means that the, there's a percentage of the bill that you pay after you've met your deductible in addition to the copays. And that again is is a plan that you've negotiated with the insurance company. When I was at with the University of Louisville, we had a copay. It wasn't very much. I don't think there was any coinsurance. Again, the, the U of L was self-insured, so that they they made up um, the details and the number of options you had. And, and their goal was to provide health care coverage for the faculty and the staff at the University of Louisville, and there wasn't any profit seeking out of it, whereas all, these, all of these other steps 
the deductibles, the co-pays, the pre-authorization, the co-insurance are all focused on extracting profit. So uh, say that I've used up my deductible and I go to see the doctor, uh, let's say I'm seeing a primary care physician and the uh, bill was $100, so I may have to pay a uh, $20 co-insurance and then I may have to pay <laughs> a copay of, of uh, $30. Well, you may pay a $30 copay, and then how much of that, whatever's left over, <laughs> you would pay would depend upon whether you had a, had a 30, 70, 20, 40, uh, you know, or, or 60, 40, or 20, 80 plan. And again, my, my purpose here is just to explain or to demonstrate how insanely complicated this system is compared to the situation where Ted Young had one or two people in his office and they would send a bill to the provincial government, the provincial health department, and the provincial health department would send them um, a check in about three or four weeks. I remember asking him about this pre-authorization issue because I dealt with that a lot in the last 10 years of my clinical practice, I did a lot of parathyroid surgery. And there are imaging studies, the um, uh, 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 combination of a radioisotope study and a CT scan <clears throat> that is used for parathyroid localization. Now, the University of Louisville did a very high quality scan and you got good results, and if you had a high-quality scan and you could see one parathyroid gland, I mean, you could literally do the operation in 20 minutes, and the patient would be done, be, go home on a, 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 the same day with a little small incision and, and, and you know, very, very low um, cost in terms of operating time in hospital care. And... And you but, can even do it under local. Yes. But if I got an imaging study from a small hospital, um, someone referred the patient to me with an imaging study <clears throat> that was from, say, a small hospital in, down in, down in uh, 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 Campbellsville, and it wasn't very good quality, I would want to get another imaging study at U of L, and I had a lot of problems with that with pre-authorization, and I asked the surgeon from Hamilton, Ontario, because he was doing the same kind of surgery I was, and it was never an issue. He needed to get another study to better localize the uh, parathyroid gland so that he could do a minimally invasive procedure. It wasn't an issue. I, I, I did this on a number of occasions, and every now and then, uh, the last one I can remember, uh, Anthem uh, refused to cover the imaging study that I, I, I ordered at U of L because it al they'd already done an imaging study, and in their their simple mind, one imaging study was as good as the other. They didn't really care. It, they just, it, it, in their view, it, they had the imaging study and that was it. The fact that it wasn't a good quality imaging study w was, was one of 
you know, the issue and then in, 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 in their focus on extracting profit as opposed to providing good care, you, you get an imaging study and that's, that's it. The fact that it, it is not as sophisticated and as, not as a good quality and if, which would allow you to save actually more money by reducing the operating room time and the in-hospital time and the post-operative issues, uh, you know, they didn't care. So, so what, what I don't know you, if that answers your question, but... Yeah, so what did you do with that patient that, they, that the insurance company wouldn't pay for the <clears throat> scan well, at well, well, there was a... I would, I would challenge it. I would write them a letter, and I would explain to them the importance of having a high-quality imaging study, which would allow me to do a minimally invasive procedure on an outpatient basis that would only take 20 minutes because it doesn't take long if you know where to go. You just go right in there, there. pop it out, and you're gone. Um, occasionally, they would, would, would cover it. Uh, the last one I did with Anthem, they refused to cover it, and the, the patient ended up with a a bill for a thousand dollars, and so it again it varied with the insurance companies, but in Canada that wasn't an issue. Okay, let me ask you uh, a couple other questions. One is, so if if the insurance company denied the scan that you wanted to do, and the patient uh, refused to pay for it. And then, uh, so you decided that uh, you, uh, the, the patient wanted to go ahead with the surgery, and you agreed to do it, and then there was a complication. Who's liable, the insurance company or you? Well, the insurance company get, pays the bill. I mean, I, I, unless, I, unless somebody decided to accuse me of medical malpractice, um, I wouldn't. I wasn't liable for it. Um, <clears throat> the end of the day, the example I just gave you, uh, the the patient got stuck with the bill. Okay. Because the insurance company wouldn't cover it. Now, the other question is, how does point of contact uh, play into all this? I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Okay. That, that's that's two levels above my pay grade. <laughs> I see that all the time, <laughs> I and I know yeah. that it, I know that it means that uh, patient, you, you know, you, you're seeing them directly. But I don't understand what it has to do with billing. Anyway, well, well, let me be be fair. As many years as I was in clinical practice, I never had to deal with this stuff. Oh I'm yeah, just me learning neither. about it now. We had a billing office, right. and they took care of all this business. Right. So as as we go through all these things and we talk about this on this radio program, I'm just literally just learning about the the complexity of all this, and and so fr from a, a clinical practice standpoint, instead of hiring two people in the office the way they do up in Ontario. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of people all having to deal with the pre-authorization and all the billing issues and all the different insurance companies and all the different plans. So I guess the morals of the story is if you're having a problem with billing in, in your doctor's office, uh, 
Uh, don't blame the doctor. <laughs> blame the complexity of the system. Oh, my, my wife is dealing with this right now because she retired from the VA, and the VA had this insurance um, company that provided health insurance for the employees at the VA. <clears throat> Her retirement w was r right at the in the height of the pandemic, and it was just a, it was just, everything was bollocked up. And she had Medicare, she got TRICARE for life because she's my wife and I have TRICARE for life. And she also, then the VA didn't remove her from the um, other insurance plan uh, for a two or three months, and she had something done, and there's this billing issue right now. They're, they're charging, wanting her to pay uh, $300 for whatever the, the reason was that the VA insurance company charged Norton Hospital for a uh, an injection of prolia <clears throat> and uh, and they want her to pay for it because they weren't supposed to be covering her because she wasn't working for the VA anymore but it wasn't her fault that the VA didn't take her take the insurance company i mean it's crazy and and this stuff this stuff is just just goes is it, you know, we have 100 million people in this country who are underinsured, and, and these are the reasons that, 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 that we're dealing with this, and this doesn't exist in most other first-world countries. So I can't help you with the point-of-service thing. I'm, that's, I'm just learning about it. Okay, maybe we should bring it up in one of our programs. <laughs> now, now, All right. Uh, You're going to tell us about. Let's move on. You're going to tell us about all this consolidation, which is another, another nightmare scenario. Well, uh, in the last uh, few months, uh, <coughs> the uh, push uh, for for-profit care has gone up at almost an exponential rate. Uh, the number of equity companies that are buying physician practices, that are buying uh, nursing homes. Uh, it's just incredible. Uh, in the month of January, I found out that uh, a big dermatology practice here in Louisville uh, sold out to an equity company. And then a large, uh, well-established practice in rural Kentucky close to where I live, sold out to an equity company. So that means that these practices are essentially uh, going to be run uh, from a profit standpoint, and uh, equity companies usually require a substantial profit. By that, I mean 15 to 20%. Now, I'm not really criticizing uh, the doctors who sold out because I suspect that they were giving a large amount of money and I suspect that they were being overwhelmed with this bureaucracy 
that we were just talking about, and I can understand why that why they did that. No, I agree with you. I think that's right. I remember <clears throat> asking one of the one of the surgeons who used to be a resident, who worked for one of the um, one of the not for profit hospitals in in Louisville. Um, um, oof, I'm not going to mention the names, but um, they, there's a small group. They were all trained here at the University of Louisville, and. Um, they basically did that. They became employees of the hospital system just to be able to get out of dealing with all the complexities of the billing and the uh, electronic health records and all, all that. The expense of having to get the electronic health records as well as just having some other personnel that the, the hospital system has that allowed them to to be less involved in administrative stuff and spend more time just, you know, doing what they were trained to do in their residency is by, by practicing surgery. Well, uh, I looked at that one time, and um, I figured if I went back into practice and had to hire all the people I needed and buy the computers and keep up with all the regulations and the coding, uh, it would probably cost over a half a million dollars just to do that. And then you would have to work uh, 18 hours a day, seven days a week, just to generate uh, uh, enough money to pay for all of it. So the complexity of practice has become overwhelming. But And I understand why people are going and working for hospitals. In Louisville, it's all uh, non-for-profit. But what I was really talking about is we got doctors who are working for equity companies, which are for profit. And we have now doctors working for for profit uh, health care companies that are owned by equity companies. And I don't understand exactly how that works, but I know it must be extremely complex. Well, do you want to talk about these yes. uh, direct contracting entities? Because that's what that's what that's uh, some of that's all about. Well, yes, we can get on to that, and then we'll go ahead. And after that, we'll talk about uh, how the uh, major industry is uh, uh, forming vertical vertical integration into their business and healthcare. All right. Well, let's just let's, okay. let's go to reach. Well, let me get to let me go through direct contracting, and then we'll go to reach because it's the same thing. So this is a this is a Medicare pilot program that was started during the Trump administration, and this uh, uh, allows uh, a middleman, and that's one of the issues we need to talk about is the the explosion of administrators in healthcare, but. With the direct contracting entity, you have a middleman, a commercial insurance company, a private equity company, or Wall Street investors. These are just the kind of people you want to be taking care of. You're running a nursing home where your mother, your grandmother, or one of your relatives is. And this was basically an attempt to privatize Medicare. And a Medicare senior can be enrolled in a direct contracting entity without their knowledge or consent because the, the direct contracting uh, entity, the insurance company or private equity, makes an arrangement with uh, a primary care physician practice 
dialysis center, surgical center, and this is something I want to, uh, you, you, we talked about this earlier, and you, you, hopefully you will explain this to me, because they claim they're going to provide, quote, value-based care. Now, let me get finished with my part, and then I, I'm, I'm going to hope you can explain to me what that means, because I looked it up on the computer uh, in two or three different uh, venues, and I can't figure it out. So, basically, um, the, the Medicare database has a huge amount of information about how much it costs to provide care for um, a patient with X number of diseases, diabetes, heart disease, and hypertension. And so they can bundle, have a primary care practice. They can bundle that, those group of patients together and, and come up with a number of how much the, the anticipated costs based on their, um, their morbidity and health status. And then the direct contracting entity then encourages the medical facility to provide the care for less than that dollar amount. And, <laughs> and they get to keep 40% of the money that's not spent on medical care. So let's just say you have a primary care practice and they've got, uh, uh, I don't know, whatever the group of, 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 of Medicare patients they have is going to cost about $6 million. And if they can provide that care for $5 million, they get to keep $400,000 uh, of the million dollars that they didn't spend on, on, on providing care for these patients. And, and then the direct contracting entity negotiates with the primary care physician practice or the dialysis or surgical center on who gets to keep how much. So again, this is the, the focus here is extracting profit from healthcare activities. That's, that's the main goal. And then what they get into is something we've talked about before. These, the, 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 the practice or the medical facility is encouraged to upcode so that it increases the amount of money in that, that amount of money that they're providing that they're working off. And the kind of upcoding they do is coding a, 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 a pre-diabetic as a diabetic. Somebody with controlled hypertension, they would code them as malignant hypertension. And again, this stuff is way, way above my pay grade because I, don't, I never had to deal with any of these things when I was in clinical practice. But, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're focused on... Fig, they fig, they're very smart, and they figured out a way to, to extract profit from the healthcare activities. So let's go to ACO Reach. Now, this is the way I understand it. The Biden administration and, and CMS has allowed this program to continue. Now, ACO Reach is the most hypocritical acronym that I've ever seen in my life. ACO 
means Accountable Care Organization, REACH, R-E-A-C-H, means, means Realizing Equity and Community Health. Th this is complete BS because, again, this is all focused on, on profit. And give me three examples, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say any more for a while. Traditional Medicare has a 2% administrative cost. So 98% of the dollars that are in traditional Medicare go to provide health care. Medicare Advantage has a 15% administrative and profit extraction. So when they provide these Medicare Advantage plans, they get to keep as much as 15% is not spent on, on providing care. And again, using the Medicare database, they figure out ways to either upcode so they have a bigger pot of money to deal with, or they do things that may actually be providing care more efficiently in order to keep a certain amount of it as profit. ACO Reach has a 25% administrative profit extraction. So, I mean, again, these are just more examples of how uh, the healthcare industry in this country has figured out all sorts of ways to extract profit out of the healthcare system. Yes. Um, I, w I want to point out now that CMS has allowed them to do that. They've actually started most of these programs. Yeah. And so they've offered uh, systems where uh, companies can uh, make a profit. And, and although I'm really opposed to for-profit medicine, I understand why um, the companies have, have taken advantage of this. Now let's get into what's uh, has been called value-based health care. Yes, I, if you can define that for me, I would very much appreciate it. Well, <laughs> uh, 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 balls if, in your court, Gene. <laughs> when I first <laughs> when I first read that, I said, "Well, that, man, that means they're going to somehow uh, increase the value of, of patient care, and they're going to increase quality of care, whatever that means." Because quality of care is hard to define. But what I finally realized by reading a lot is that value-based health care really means that uh, it's, it, it particularly evolves around the uh, Medicare Advantage plans that you can increase the value of that patient care by decreasing the cost. So if you decrease the cost, you have increased the value because your expenses have gone down. So the value of that product has gone up. And, and the way that uh, these companies are doing that is uh, trying to keep uh, people in Medicare and, and Advantage plans out of the ER which is expensive, and out of the hospital and, and uh, readmissions. Now, that's a good idea, and they've actually accomplished that. The problem is, though, they don't talk about that, that there's 
more money uh, being spent and more profits than they are being saved. And they don't talk about that part of the equation. Now, there has been a study, unfortunately, this study was um, done by a, uh, uh, a subsidiary of United Healthcare that showed that they had actually decreased admissions to the ER and to the uh, uh, readmissions to the hospital. But uh, they don't talk about the rest of it. And this was a study that, that's prejudiced because it was done by a uh, so-called provider. Well, well, there's some issues with this keeping people out of the ERs and out of the hospitals because um, we were down in Arizona uh, last month with some friends and um, were told a story about someone who needed to be seen and wasn't seen initially for quite a while because of this this issue of doing the value-based care was focused on not spending you know the resources to have somebody seen in emergency room so you know the balance the way the way that the way that particular situation turned out is that it was, you know, in my opinion, it was, was poor quality care. And I, I, and I told them that I felt this was something that probably uh, bordered on, on medical liability, not allowing this person to get into the hospital who really needed to be seen in an emergency room and they needed to be admitted. Uh, you know, for uh, I, I'm not going to go through all the details, but it was very clear from a medical standpoint that this person should have been seen and should have been admitted to the hospital. Uh, this is very, very common. Uh, it happens uh, on a daily basis at every hospital and every uh, emergency room, and uh, it's because of pressure. Uh, placed on them by the insurance companies, yes. and we've kind of gotten focused on readmission. Now, the other thing that's going on, which is actually uh, uh, more frightening, is we have several medical industries that are <clears throat> going into vertical integration. I hope I'm using that word correctly. I always get vertical integration and horizontal integration mixed up. But anyway, uh, we have companies, and an exa example of this is uh, CVS. They now own Aetna. They out now own Oak Street uh, uh, Physicians Group, which is a very large physicians group who do nothing but see Advantage uh, patients. They own a, a physician. Pharmacy Management Group, and then they own Signify Health. Signify Health is a uh, group that sends physicians into the homes. The theory is that if you are examined and have a wellness exam uh, every year, that you uh, can be healthier. We can provide. You can provide. Uh, uh, expertise, find things in the home that are dangerous. For, for example, 
uh, steps that could increase falls, lighting, etc., and that you can decrease uh, morbidity and mortality, and that you can decrease the readmissions and going to the emergency room. So we have all this uh, large group of, uh, uh, of companies which are now formed under one umbrella, and the CEO is a, is a lady named uh, Karen Lynch, and her concept is that if you can provide this type of care, that you can increase uh, uh, <coughs> uh, wellness and you can decrease morbidity and mortality. Now, to my knowledge, and if anybody knows different, I'm really interested in this, I know of no proof that that works. My experiences have been that, at least in Kentucky, most of the illnesses are really not related to uh, physician or uh, institutional care, but it's uh, related to self-induced illnesses. For in Kentucky, most of our illnesses are related to smoking, obesity, lack of exercise, and I can tell you that the only thing I've accomplished in my 40 years of practice in trying to get patients uh, to uh, quit smoking is I've gotten a lot of people mad. <laughs> and the same thing's true about obesity. I promise you if you're a provider, uh, you better not say anything derogatory about obesity. I, I, I got to discipline one time. Uh, and this was, this is a funny story. Uh, I was with a medical student, and I had a patient who was young and very obese, uh, and w uh, we were evaluating for abdominal pain, and we we had ruled out that she didn't have anything seriously wrong. And I walked out of her room, and uh, an aide was pushing a patient down the hall in a double-wide wheelchair, and I said to the medical student, it's sad that we have to have wheelchairs like that. And the lady in the room overheard me and reported me. <laughs> so now yeah, you have to learn to speak quietly and carry a big stick. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, the, the interesting thing of what CVS plan is that they're going to combine all this. They're going to put uh, physicians, uh, the uh, either close to CVS stores, and they have CVS stores almost over the entire United States uh, within 85% uh, of the population. Uh, they even have stores in underserved areas. They're going to, uh, they're going to put physicians uh, in, in the, their stores. They're going to decrease their retail business. So they will see uh, patients uh, in 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 the drug store, these patients uh, will uh, then get their drugs, and of course, most of them will get them with CVS, and then they're going to be monitored by Home Health uh, uh, through Signify Health. They're going to get wellness exams, and that we're going to make them uh, uh, weller. And we're going to decrease admissions. Now, one of the other things that goes on with these programs, especially these Medicare Advantage programs, is upcoding. 
Right. And this now, is an important part let, of let it. Let me give you a really good example of that. Um, let's say a patient has diabetes. Now, we know that patients who have diabetes have increased vascular disease. And we know uh, that uh, if we do certain tests like ABIs, the newest way of doing that is called Quantiflow. So it, it, I've talked to several vascular surgeons. They agree there is absolutely no reason to do prophylactic tests on anyone who's asymptomatic. If I have a diabetic who can walk a mile every day, who's not having heart disease, has not had a stroke, there's no reason to do a test to find out if he's got vascular disease. Uh, but if you do a test, and, and uh, by the way, the, there's a group in America that's funded by the federal government that sanctifies certain prophylactic tests, for example, colonoscopy, mammography, pap smears, etc. They do not recommend you get prophylactic tests from peripheral vascular disease. But if I do an ABI or Quantiflow on a 90-year-old, and, and I promise you that uh, some of these companies are recommending that and are asking it be done, by the nurse practitioners or physicians who go in the home if they are found to have a small amount of vascular disease, it doesn't have to be clinically significant, then they can upcode yes. that 45%. So it dramatically increases the amount of money they get. Okay, Gene, I think we're going to have to end there. I'm going to make a suggestion. We've... we've um, I think we need to do one more program. I need, we need to talk about pharmacy benefit managers, administrative overload, uh, medical debt and bankruptcy, electronic health records, and the rural health status. Okay. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll pass this back over to, to Mark, who can do his um, final shtick, and we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll end, the, end the program for today. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Mike. <laughs> you see, we now, got through this whole program yeah, yeah. without saying any bad words. <laughs> That's, <right. laughs> That's a miracle. And, and, and I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, now, something that wasn't mentioned uh, during your all's discussion is what our system has done to encourage people to try to seek health care and meds outside the country to avoid bankruptcy. Yes, and I think we, we, we need to talk about the, the caravan to Canada in the next program. Well, it's not only to Canada, but people going into areas where drug cartels oh, are yes, running these poor rampant. Oh, yes, people down in Matamoros. Uh, I mean, good Lord. And Oof. it's other countries, other first world countries do not have to deal with that. That's it. you're absolutely right. Um, and also in this country, health care is being used as a weapon against women's health care. Yes. As well as trans folks. Yes. That's another story. Yes, it is. Um, but for people who want to find out more information about Kentuckians for single payer health care. You can go to kyhealthcare.org, 
kyhealthcare.org. Harriet and Kay Tillo, our uh, chairperson, keep us uh, up on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. If you would, if you have some ideas or comments about our programs, you can email our chairperson, Kay Tillo, directly at nursenpo at aol.com, nursenpo at aol.com. Another reminder that the pledge drive for WFMPLP 106.5 is toward the end of this month, March 27th through April the 9th. Uh, we're going to have a, a, a sixth birthday party Saturday, April the 8th from 6.30 to 8.30. You can go to forwardradio.org and get all the details on that. So for Forward Radio and Kentuckians for Single-Payer Healthcare, I'm Mark McKinley. Thanks for listening. How's y'all? Th-